0: Guys, when the topic of the church comes up, maybe over this Thanksgiving, people are talking about what's going on in their lives, and the topic of the church comes up. What is your first reaction? Is it a positive reaction or is it a negative reaction? My guess is with as many people as in this room, there's a gamut of responses from positive to very negative and everywhere in between. If your reaction to the church is negative, I hope that this morning's text will help you see what the church is called to be and can be that the church is not to be a place of people dressed in their Sunday best, drinking coffee and donuts, and talking about how much better they are than the world. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for coffee and donuts. I've had several cups already this morning. But I'm against, obviously, as we all should be, a self-righteousness that views ourselves as better than somebody else. That's not what the church can or should be. The church, this text tells us, should be a place that when you fall, somebody picks you up. When you have a burden that's too great to bear, somebody shares that burden with you. It's a loving place, a generous place, a persevering place where people stick it out through the good and through the bad, through the ugly. It is a glorious place. The church can and should be, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a glorious place. So my hope is for you that today, maybe perhaps for the first time, you can see through your skepticism, see through your pain and your hurts, and objectively look at what the church can be, and maybe think about joining us uh, here at Norris Ferry. If your reaction is more positive, more to the positive side, you weren't dragged here this morning through force or some other means, maybe you've been attending for a while, my hope is that this passage we'll encourage you to take the next step to sign up for Connection Group and really plug into a Christian community. It's really, really hard to have authentic, deep Christian relationships when all you get is an hour on Sunday morning. It's just nearly impossible. So my hope for you is that you take that next step. If you're a member here and you've been with us through these 17 weeks of Galatians where the gospel has been preached for 17 consecutive weeks, uh, my hope is that this gospel has really started for all of us to saturate our thinking, our living, our, our the way we do everything—work, worship, and everything—that we would, as as David was singing, as they were practicing, uh, "It is well with my soul." David got stuck on the second verse and prayed over it. But that as we sing this, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That that truth, that that gospel truth would transform us. And the message of this week's text, Galatians 6, 1 through 10, is that the gospel changes lives, yes, but it also changes relationships, churches, and communities that the gospel changes lives, relationships, churches, and communities. So what does a gospel-saturated church look like? What does a gospel-saturated relationship look like? That's what we are exploring this morning. We learn first that gospel-saturated communities are restorative. Look at Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. The thought here of being caught in a trespass is a visual of somebody being tied with a rope so tightly and so thoroughly that they can't get out without somebody cutting them loose. It's a reminder that we are daily in the midst of a spiritual battle between good and evil, we have a real enemy. We read in 1 Peter five eight that our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Seeking someone to devour. That's serious language. The enemy would love nothing better than to chew us up and spit us out. And if you've been walking in this Christian walk long enough, you've been chewed up and spit out. I know I have. There are times in this Christian walk where we get entangled in sin, and we get beaten up, bruised, battered, bloodied, and we need somebody to come with us, and we need someone to restore us. So when we see our brothers and sisters caught in a sin, we're to restore them, and we are to seek restoration. The word "restore" here really is a term that's talking about setting a dislocated bone. If you've ever seen a shoulder get jacked back into socket. It is not a pleasant thing. Actually, it looks really painful. I've never had it happen to me, thankfully. But the relief on the flip side of the pain is so worth it. And in the same way, when we have fallen, gotten caught in a sin, we've been dislocated from the freedom that Christ has purchased for us, from the community that we've been created to be a part of. And we are to go and restore our brother and sister. But we're to do so in a spirit of gentleness. This doesn't mean that we're to turn a blind eye and pretend like the sin isn't there, but we're to do so in gentleness, in love, to speak the truth in love, in patience for the purpose of restoration. I was changing Tripp, my little 17-month-old boy this morning, and he doesn't like changing his diapers first thing in the morning, and he's, you know, going spazzing out everywhere, and it's tempting to just get flustered, especially on a Sunday morning, but Supposed to be gentle and change the diaper. That's the spirit of gentleness that we're called to. We're also supposed to do so with a extreme awareness of our own weakness. Galatians six one says that we're to look to ourselves so that we will not be tempted. None of us have any grounds to be self righteous. The only reason we're not caught in the exact same sin, in the exact same degree, is the mighty, awesome grace of God. But for the grace of God, we would be the person being restored rather than the person doing the restoration. Well, restoration can happen in this serious degree when we get caught where we can't get out without somebody else's help. It's really best done voluntarily and frequently. And that's really what we want happening in our community groups, that we are to frequently, on a weekly basis, confess our sin to one another and allow the truth and the light of the gospel to shine in the dark places in our life. We don't pretend they're not there. We confess and restore with one another. I know it's hard to get everything done in two hours that we want to get done. The time just squeezes, it flies, I know. But I found that if you break up in guys and girls, it really creates an awesome environment where there can be a deeper level of Transparency, confession, and restoration where we speak the word over our sins and restore one another. The gospel-saturated community is restorative. We're also to be burden-bearing people. Look at Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The word here, burden, is really a big rock or a weight that somebody had to carry for a long period of time. It was an oppressive burden that really no one could bear by themselves. You don't need me to stand up here and tell you that life is hard. We've all, many of us, been to funerals of those who we've loved deeply. I've buried all four of my grandparents since Ashley and I have been married in these 11 years. We've all been on the phone or email correspondence when someone has gotten cancer or another life-threatening disease. Just recently, many of you guys know Chris Hanchie. Um He uh, just was diagnosed with cancer uh, over in Ruston, a man who uh, influenced my spiritual life greatly. We've all walked with our friends through painful divorces or have walked through that ourselves and seen the devastation and pain and hurt that flows from that. We've all experienced work situations or a lot of us that seem oppressive, like there's no end in sight that it's going to crush us. And I've shared my struggle with that. These burdens are heavy. They're more than we can bear alone. We're to share these burdens with one another. We're to walk with one another through these burdens. We're to practically meet the one another's needs. We are to pray for one another, sacrifice for one another. And as we do this, Paul says we fulfill The law of Christ, that is the law of love. The law of Christ is the law of love. It's not some wishy-washy Hollywood feel-good love. This is a sacrificial love. It's the love that brought Jesus down from his perfect home in heaven to live a very humble but perfect life on this earth, to be falsely accused, to be beaten to be bloodied, to be spit on, to have a crown of thorns placed on his head, to carry his cross to his own place of execution, to have his nails, the hands um, nailed to the cross, to be lifted up, to die of suffocation, to experience the separation of God, to satisfy in his body the full wrath of God so that we could have life and hope and peace it's a costly love. This is how we fulfill the law of Christ, bearing one another's burdens. It costs Jesus' His life, and in a real way, it costs us ours. In Matthew sixteen twenty-four, Jesus says we're to follow him, and to do so, we must deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow him. It's too hard for us, obviously, in our own strength. That's why we have to walk by the Spirit. It's the Spirit's power in us producing his fruit in us, uh, which is the only way that we can bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. So what holds us back from this type of burden bearing? I mean, why don't we see this more than we do? Galatians 6.3 gives the reason. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. There are many reasons why we don't bear one another's burdens, I suppose, but one of the most significant is pride. Schreiner puts it this way, those who do not help others in their struggles, who, lives li- who live lives of splendid isolation, are guilty of pride. They think they're something when they are nothing. Arrogance cuts people off from the lives of others, but it, al- it is also deceitful, for those who are proud are impressed with themselves when in actuality they are nothing. When we realize the burden that Christ bore on our behalf, we will naturally, through the power and work of the Holy Spirit, look to bear one another's burdens. Tracy mentioned last week a kind of revival of prayer of sorts that many of us on staff are going through, and i become personally convic- convicted and convinced that prayer is the primary and most powerful way that we can bear one another's burdens. Now, we are to, in a practical way, meet one another's needs and bear burdens that way. But I believe that prayer is the most powerful way that we can bear the burdens of others. As we take those burdens to the ultimate burden bearer, we're doing an amazing, powerful work. I was reminded just a couple of weeks ago that as we pray that the sovereign God of all creation responds to our prayers and acts differently in this creation. Just think about that for a while. The sovereign God of all creation has ordained that we pray in a certain way so that he can respond in perfect conformity with his will. That will blow your mind if you really sit back and think about it for a while. What an awesome privilege, an awesome calling, an awesome task of burden bearing that all of us can do and participate in. We are to be a restorative community, a burden-bearing community, and we're to engage in self-examination. Now, what does that mean? It means we're to be a people who look at where we've been in our walk with Christ, where we are now in our walk with Christ, and where we believe God is leading us. Look at Galatians 6, 4 through 5. But each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. This type of examination is one of the reasons why we do life stories at the beginning of our community groups because it forces us to think about where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. And Paul says, as we do this, there is a legitimate type of boasting that can go on. Now, Paul makes clear this isn't self-exaltation, right? In Galatians 6.14, next week's text, he said that he will not boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. But there is a very real sense where we can say, listen, I was here and now I'm here in my walk with Christ and I can see the fruit of the Spirit being born in my life and there's growth and there's a sense that we really can rejoice, we can boast in what the Lord is doing in and through us. To be used by the Lord is an amazing and powerful experience, as you guys all know, as you share Christ with someone or pray for someone and see that answered. It's a thrill. It's something worth boasting in. But there's one very important limitation on this type of reflection that Paul emphasizes three times in this verse. Look back at six four with me and listen to the emphasis. But each one must examine his own work. And then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. What's Paul saying here? I thought about it a while and I think this sentence really sums up his point. Paul is saying that a gospel-saturated person stops thinking about what other people should be doing for God and rather thinks about what God is calling him or her to do that step on any toes i'll read it again i hope it does paul is saying that a gospel saturated person stops thinking about what other people should be doing for god and rather thinks about what god is calling him or her to do if i didn't get you the first time maybe i did the second time We all struggle with this, right? When we hear a good sermon, what's oftentimes our first reaction? Man, I wish my wife was here. She needed to hear that, right? We all do this, but Paul says, no, no, no. You are responsible with the calling that the Lord has placed on your life. You're not responsible for whether your wife is obedient or not, or is loving or not. You're called to love. It's in that sense that Paul says each one will bear his own load. He's saying each one is responsible for the calling that the Lord has placed upon your life. Each one is responsible to fulfill the good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. Not in your own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're to be faithful in the task that he has called us to do. So self-reflection in the American culture is not something that happens as much as it should, right? We're all busy. When Shannon was here, he told the African proverb, you Americans have the watches, but we Africans have the time, right? We just don't have a lot of time. We've got little kids and we're busy. But I would encourage you, maybe sometime today or this week, I know it's Thanksgiving, school's out and that's hard, but I encourage you to take 30 minutes this week and engage in this type of self-reflection. Open your Bible to Galatians 5, and get before the Lord, and get real, and maybe ask some questions like these, doesn't have to be these questions, but something to this effect. Am I currently experiencing the freedom that Christ purchased for me? Do I truly believe that there's nothing that I could do that would make God love me more, and nothing I could do that would make God love me less? Meaning, do I understand the gospel? Three, how am I experiencing the battle between the flesh and the spirit? Is the spirit winning out or is the flesh doing a pretty good job? Is there more evidence of the fruit of the spirit in my life today than there was a year ago? Do you see growth? Do you have a reason for boasting in what the Lord is doing in your life? And then finally, as we think about goals for this next coming year, it's, it's almost here, New Year's is going to be here, we're blink ask this question, what do I sense the Lord wants to do in my life in this coming year? What do I sense the Lord wants me to do in my life in this coming year? We're to be restorative, burden-bearing, engaged in self-examination, and we're to be a generous people. Look at Galatians six. 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Now, that's a pretty self-serving statement uh, up here preaching, uh, isn't it? And if you're like me at this point, you see the big televangelist with the purple, big purple hair crying and and begging you to give all your money. um, And that's a tragedy. Well, it's kind of funny. It's very serious because those people are misleading millions of people, and they'll be held accountable for their false teaching. But it's tragic in our context in a more practical way because churches like Norse Ferry responding to that type of abuse tend to separate and shy away from talking about money because we want people to understand the gospel without all that baggage. We don't want it to be mixed together. But the negative consequence of that is that the Bible talks a lot about our relationship with money. Jesus was obsessed with the topic. He wanted us to have a healthy relationship with our stuff. So here it is, Galatians six six. Conveniently, Tracy's out of town. I get to talk about it. Uh, but it's pretty simple. What he's saying here is that those who are taught the Word of God are to share with those who teach. So yes, that means uh, in this context that um, there are salaries that the people on staff, uh, if you guys don't give, we don't get paid, Uh, There are electric bills that if you don't tithe, then these lights don't go on and these lights don't get changed. And the mics and the AV equipment, et cetera, et cetera. The donuts and the coffee, if you guys don't tithe, those don't get bought. Uh, So in a very real and practical way, if you're part of a community of faith, you're called to participate financially. But the principle is way, way bigger than that. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24 to 27, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The gospel will change how you view your financial resources. Just as every breath, every heartbeat, every lucid thought, every good relationship is a gift from God, so is every penny, every dollar, every bank account, every home, every meal, fill in the blank. It's all a gift from God. It's all God's. We're just stewards of his resources. So if you're like me at this point, I'm typically wanting a rule. So how much do I have to give to be good with God, right? So I can check that off my list. I'll give, you know, 10%. Then I can do whatever I want with the other 90. You know, how, what do I need? What do you want, God? But the New Testament is exactly the opposite. It is isn't intentionally silent on exactly how much we should give. That's not how the gospel works. We don't create a rule that we can fulfill and thereby justify ourselves. It's messier than that. We've plugged J.D. Greer's book, Gospel Recovering the Power That Made Christianity Revolutionary, several times uh, through this series, and I'm going to shamelessly plug it again, particularly chapter 8 on extravagant generosity. He asked several questions that, as I was reading it, preparing for this message, really, really struck me. One of those most particularly was, whose kingdom are you building? He explains it this way. The most fundamental question every disciple of Christ must ask himself is, which kingdom is his primary pursuit? Quit thinking so much about the amount you're giving, and instead think about the kingdom you're pursuing. Following Jesus means seeing your life as a seed to be planted for God's kingdom. Did you get that sentence? Following Jesus means seeing your life as a seed to be planted for God's kingdom. So ask yourself, what have you done with the majority of your resources up to this point in your life? And how are you leveraging your talents now for God's kingdom? It's not clean and black and white, it's messy. So where do you go from here? I'd just say, seek the Lord. Pray and ask Him how He would like you to use the resources that He's blessed you with. Ask those around you in your life, let's work this out together. How am I supposed to do this? It's hard. It's messy. Uh, but we are called to be generous people. We will be if we understand the gospel. So we're called to be restorative, burden-bearing, self-examining, generous. We're also called to be fruitful. Look at Galatians 6, 7 through 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul is clearly looking back to Galatians five nineteen through 23, when he set forth the deeds of the flesh and then the fruit of the Spirit and contrasted them As we saw, the deeds of the flesh leads to this downward spiral of depravity and disintegration and unraveling of everything that is good in life. Sin just pulls everything apart, while the fruit of the Spirit brings it all back together. Jesus said he came to give us life and life abundantly, and that's done when the Spirit is in us, producing his fruit through us, his love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As his fruit is born in us, then we will live. We will bear life. Paul is teaching us also that the way we live, every decision we make, every conversation we have, has eternal significance. Look at verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. We're pretty good in the South about putting up our little smiley faces and pretending like we're not struggling pretending like everything's okay when it's not. What Paul is saying is here is God's not impressed or fooled. God knows everything. He's all-knowing. You can't play games with him. It doesn't work. He's all-knowing. He knows about every atom and every chair and every hair on our head, every atom in the universe. He's created it all. You can't fool him. Well, that can be a horrifying thought and reality for those of us who are kind of aware of our depravity and our sinful nature. It's also a beautiful thought, Because the God who knows every single thing about us also loved us enough to come to this earth and die for us. See, when Jesus died for you, he knew all the sin that you would commit, both past, present, and future. He knows everything that's wrong with you and said, I love you, and died for you with that knowledge. That's a beautiful reality. So where do we go from there? We can finally stop playing games with God and keep it real like David in the Psalms, and say, Lord, you know what I'm about. You know my strengths. You know my weaknesses. Shine the light of the gospel in your spirit on those dark areas of my life and help me walk in the light of the gospel and the fruit of the spirit, walking in your power. We're to be restorative, burden-bearing, self-examining, generous, fruitful, and finally, the last one, long-suffering. Look at Galatians 6, 9 through 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We find ourselves in a serious and cosmic battle between good and evil. And that battle is not only outside of us, but it is also inside of us. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. There is a battle that is constantly waging within us and that is tiring. We get weary. We feel like giving up. And to that place, Paul speaks, don't quit. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 puts it this way. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're to endure and do good works while we have the opportunity, Paul says, think about that, the opportunity for Paul to do good works has stopped. He's been dead and gone for a long time. The opportunity for the Galatians to do good is also passed. They've been dead and gone for a long time. We're here. We're alive. This is our time to do good while we have the opportunity. We're to seize every moment and reclaim it for the purposes that God has placed us here, to do the good works He has prepared in advance for us to do. And we're to do this like Jesus for the joy set before us, for the joy that will be ours when Christ returns. We read in Revelation 21.4 that when he comes, he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. In short, when Jesus returns, there'll be no more burdens to bear before he will have borne them all. Gospel-saturated communities our long-suffering, in it for the long haul, and the good and the bad and the ugly. So if you've come here this morning and you're skeptical, you're tired of hypocrites, you bear burdens and hurts from past church experiences, I hope that the truth of this text has spoken to your heart and to your mind and allowed you to objectively look at what the church can and should be. And I hope that you'll join us or some other healthy church and start walking with a Christian community. I hope you'll see that it's a place where people pick you up when you're down. It's a place where people bear your burdens when you can't bear them by yourself. It's a place where people are thinking about where they've been, where they are, where they're going, um, who are generous, who are looking for ways to meet your needs, and you have the opportunity to look for ways to meet theirs fruitful and persevering. If you've been here for a while and you're more positive, why don't you take the next step and dive in a little deeper and experience this type of Christian community? If you are a member here, and lots of us are, and especially the first hour, I hope that this has encouraged you to see how the gospel should not only stay here in your individual lives, but that it is called to influence your relationships with other people, and it's called to transform our church here at Norris Ferry, that the gospel would saturate this place through the power of the Holy Spirit. you pray with me? Father, I I pray that the truth of this message would um, be clear in this place, that if there are people here, even who are members, who have become skeptical about your church, who have wounds inflicted by other church members or even by the leadership here or at other churches, Lord, I pray you would bring healing by the power of your Spirit that you would allow them to not have a spirit of, cynicism or skepticism but lord that they would be able to see by the power of your spirit the potential that your body your church your bride has to bring restoration to the to their lives to bear burdens that need to be borne. it's a generous place a fruitful place a long-suffering and persevering place Lord, would you instruct us all how you want this to change our individual relationships? And would you do this mighty work? Would you allow Norse Ferry to be a gospel-saturated church captivated by the reality of the gospel, that there's nothing we could do to make you love us more or less And that out of that freedom, out of the freedom that you have purchased for us, that we could sacrificially love and serve one another for your name, for your glory. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.